This message comes from NPR sponsor Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Thanks to Dana-Farber's foundational work, protein degradation can target cancer-causing proteins and destroy them right inside the cell. Learn more at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. Hi, it's Sarah, your host for this edition of the News Roundup. Just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is rapidly changing, and things may have changed by the time you hear this episode. So stay up to date with news by listening to your local NPR member station and visiting NPR.org for all the latest. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. You're listening to the 1A Podcast. I'm NPR's Sarah McCammon, and it's time for another edition of the News Roundup. This attack has brought to the surface painful memories and the scars left by a millennia of anti-Semitism and genocide of the Jewish people. So in this moment, we must be crystal clear. We stand with Israel. And we will make sure Israel has what it needs to take care of its citizens, defend itself, and respond to this attack. There's no justification for terrorism. There's no excuse. President Biden forcefully denounced Hamas's attack on Israel in the strongest terms on Tuesday. He called last weekend's attack an act of sheer evil. At least 1,000 people were killed in Hamas's weekend attack. At least 1,400 died after Israel responded with airstrikes on Gaza in the six days since, according to the Palestinian Health Ministry. This week, Biden's administration has been in close contact with the Israeli government. U.S. officials said 27 Americans were killed and 14 others remain unaccounted for. At least some are believed to have been taken captive by Hamas. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken arrived in Israel on Thursday in a show of support and solidarity. And of course, that is where we begin our wrap-up of the week's news. Our guests this week are Idris Kaloun, the Washington Bureau Chief for The Economist. Thanks for being here. Good to be with you. Wendy Benjaminson, Washington Senior Editor for Bloomberg News. Hi, Wendy. Hi, thanks for having me. And Alex Thompson, National Political Correspondent with Axios. Hi, Alex. Hey. So I think it's worth just hearing from each of you about where you would start this week and your reflections on last weekend's shocking attack by Hamas. Alex, I'll begin with you. You know, the one thing I've been really interested to see is just how unequivocal Joe Biden has been in standing in solidarity with Israel. Now, maybe that isn't necessarily a surprise given the gruesome and horrific nature of some of these attacks. But you have to remember that, you know, during the Obama administration, relationships with Israel were quite rocky, especially in the second term. Barack Obama and Bibi Netanyahu did not get along, um, whereas Joe Biden has a uh, 30-year, what he calls a friendship with Bibi Netanyahu going back uh, to the 90s, going back to his time in the Senate. And his expressions of solidarity with Israel have been such that they've even surprised um, you know, many Republican supporters of Israel and really drawn praise from some unexpected corners of the right. Um, you're also going to see Lloyd Austin go to Israel. You're going to see Chuck Schumer, who's the first Jewish uh, Senate majority leader in history. He's also going to Israel. There has been a, a clear sense of it, we are we are completely on Israel's side. You're seeing billboards in Israel with Joe Biden on them, thanking him for his support. And you know, I think that that is. Uh, 
you know, just striking, given that there has been a, a a growing part of the left too that has had a a clearly much more nuanced take on the Israel Palestine, um, in some cases outright pro Palestine parts um, of the left. You know, Joe Biden has essentially, you know, has made it very clear that he is going to be, you know, a Zionist president, president essentially, um, and that he is like unequivocal in his support. Wendy, what do you think? Did that come as a surprise to you? The attack certainly came as a surprise to us, and and it was a spectacular failure of Israeli intelligence, which is, you know, one of those institutions, again, that we can't uh, necessarily rely on anymore. Mm. But the the political unanimity, um, you know, between the right and the moderate left in the middle— you know that to me was was fairly expected the there is a problem to joe biden's left progressive democrats as alex said um have a feeling that israel reaped what it sowed here by keeping gaza under its thumb for so long and letting them be prey to a group like hamas and um i think that um right now he can tamp it down by saying any um any criticism of the Israeli government or Israeli intelligence or Netanyahu's policies um, equals anti-Semitism. And I think what will what the U.S. may get to through this is the difference between signs that say gas the Jews or you see people in hijabs holding up swastikas. There's a difference between that and legitimate criticism of the Israeli policies that um, certainly not blaming them for the Hamas attack, but for for the Netanyahu government, for the very sort of right-wing policies that he has espoused. Mm. And Idris, your thoughts? Um, Obviously, it was an incredibly heinous attack. And, um, you know, I think that Joe Biden was always going to be on the side of of Israel, given the ferocity of of the attack. I think that in the uh, immediate days, Biden said that Israel had an unequivocal right to retaliate, and I think there was not as much uh, attention to uh, or mention of of restraint, and I think you're already seeing that there's a change in tone. So uh, Anthony Blinken, Secretary of State, is in Israel. He's going to be going to a lot of the other states as well. Um, And and he said, I think, a, a, a striking quote, which is that how Israel does this matters. We democracies distinguish ourselves from terrorists by striving for a different standard. That's why it's so important to take every possible precaution to avoid harming civilians. Um, and I think that the unanimity that that is that exists clearly within within the American uh, political system at the moment uh, may dissipate uh, over the, over the next few weeks. Um, you know, some Republicans did blame the administration for the uh, money that had been given to Iran. I think that was a tenuous claim. Um, but as the casualties mount in Gaza, as unfortunately I think they will, um, I think that this this period of unanimity in America will will dissipate as well. And Alex, I want to talk a little bit more about the administration's response. President Biden's White House speech was watched by almost half of Israeli households, according to Axios reporter Barack Ravid. Talk a little bit more about the steps the administration has taken to show its support for Israel. Yeah, I mean, there's there's two things. There's obviously obviously the symbolic uh, parts, which we have discussed. You know, sending Tony Blinken there immediately. That speech, which was you know very poignant by the president. But there have been actually you know very significant uh, you know strategic things done as well. You saw. Um, 
uh, you know, Joe Biden basically move parts of the um, the military uh, closer to Israel and essentially said, um, I'm paraphrasing here with the original quote, but he said, uh, any other country that is looking to take advantage of this situation, I have one word for you, don't, don't. He is, you know, essentially is trying to make sure that this conflict, and it's unclear if he'll be successful, that this conflict does not spread in a significant way, does not draw in Lebanon, does not draw in, you know, Iran and Saudi Arabia. Now, the the bigger part of that, the bigger context of that is that the Biden administration is very much trying, this comes in the midst of the Biden administration really trying to broker a deal with Saudi Arabia um, and not letting this explode that. I'd also say the other significant thing is that they've signaled they are going to um, send some additional military aid as well. So I think you have two things, you know, symbolic gestures of solidarity with Israel and also specific military commitments um, and moves. Mm -hmm. And all of this is complicated. The response is complicated by the hostage situation in Gaza. More than 100 hostages are believed to be there, including some Americans. On Wednesday, Biden's national security spokesperson, John Kirby, was asked by reporters about that. Where they are and in what condition? No. Sadly, we don't know. Uh, and that makes efforts very, very difficult, and again, in these early hours. But we don't know. We don't know where they are. We don't know if they're all in one group or broken up into several groups. We don't know if they're being moved and with what frequency and to what locations. All of those questions uh, we're working hard to answer. Wendy, how has the hostage situation complicated Israel's response and efforts to go after Hamas targets in Gaza? Well, I... I I think, sadly, it is not going to temper much of Israel's response. We um, spoke to, I spoke to Eliav Benjamin, who is the deputy uh, chief of mission at the Israeli embassy this week on Bloomberg Television. And he, he, we asked him directly, like, what about the hostages? And his response was, our primary objective is to crush Hamas, that that is, that's what we're going to do. And in the suggestion was, you know, if we see somebody who's a hostage, you know, and they want to jump on the tank, that's fine. But um, but that is not the primary objective. And of course, the U.S. is hamstrung from, you know, helicoptering in special forces from that carrier group and, and getting ho- American hostages out because then America is squarely in the war. And so I think it's going to be um, a very difficult prospect. You know, Idris, administration after administration has tried to pivot away, at least to some extent, from the Middle East or make headway on other foreign policy goals. How might that shift have played into both the timing of this attack and the failure we've mentioned of Israeli or U.S. intelligence agencies to know much about it? Yeah, there was a a clear failure here. Um, The Israeli strategy of uh, keeping the Gazans uh, in place, monitoring them extensively uh, and, and thinking that this kind of incursion was impossible, clearly uh, has failed. Uh, it has implications for not just American politics, but especially Israeli politics, uh, that, which had been incredibly divisive uh, in the months leading up to this. I think that might have had some some role as well in, in, in Hamas's calculation. Uh, but, you know, America has found that it is very hard to move away from Israel. In fact, the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, last week um, said that, you know, the Middle East was quieter than at any point in the last two decades. And those were obviously, uh, you know, ill-timed words. We're going to take a quick pause here, but we'll be back with more from you and our guests in just a moment. So stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor LiveRight, publishers of Left for Dead, Shipwreck, Treachery, and Survival at the Edge of the World by Eric J. Dolan. 
The True Story of Five Castaways Abandoned on the Falkland Islands During the War of 1812. Available wherever books are sold. This message comes from Capital One, presenting sponsor of the 2024 Tiny Desk Contest. Earlier this year, unsigned musicians from around the country submitted their original songs for the 10th annual Tiny Desk Contest. The panel of judges are hard at work picking standout entries, and you can follow along and choose your favorite videos as well. The winner gets to play their very own Tiny Desk concert, then headline a tour with NPR Music this summer. Want to come along for the ride? Visit tinydeskcontest.npr.org to learn more, then check out the Venture X card from presenting sponsor Capital One. Earn unlimited 2x miles on everything you buy and turn everyday purchases into extraordinary trips. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details. Let's get back to the news roundup. Earlier this week, Congress called on the White House to refreeze $6 billion of Iranian funds. They were released as part of a recent prisoner swap deal. Iran's ties to Hamas are well known, but Iran has denied involvement in this latest attack on Israel. Here's Republican Senator Tom Cotton speaking to Fox News on Wednesday. They spent the weekend saying how not a penny of that money has been spent. Well, that's great news. That means that we can refreeze the money and not send it to Iran. I'm very worried that they refuse to answer that simple question, that it suggests that, in fact, they can't plan to go forward with that foolish decision and allow Iran to access that $6 billion. All that money is doing is fueling Iran's campaign of terror across the region. Okay, Alex, a lot has happened in the last couple of days, but just remind us about those funds. What are they for? And does Iran currently have access to them? Yeah, so there are a lot of deceptive talking points on both sides here. So, um, it, and, and here's sort of some of the facts. So, the the funds were not American taxpayer dollars. They were in a Qatari bank account. They still are in a Qatari bank account. They were done in exchange for this prisoner swap. Now, the Biden administration says, well, there are provisions. They can only use the money for certain things. Now, that is true, but Republicans have said, well, if they're allowed to use that money for certain things, then, then they can they can eternally use money for other things. So, you know, funding Hamas or funding other sort of activities. So this idea that, oh, well, we, we made sure they can only spend it on this money doesn't really pass the smell test because Iran can then just rededicate the money that's already being spent on some of those priorities to other things. The so, whole money is fungible problem. Yes, exactly. So, so this whole idea um, is 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 sort of crazy. But then this idea that the money had been spent already—that was not true. And, and what you've seen the administration do just yesterday is sort of put like a temporary freeze on the money. Now, they have not been clear about how long this will last. They have basically, it, it, or if they're just sort of bowing to political pressure temporarily, we don't really know. Um, and it's going to be fascinating to watch out because I also think the the broader criticism here from the GOP to the Biden administration is they feel the Biden administration has been too friendly with Iran. That's what this larger debate and context is about. It's not really about this particular deal. The right feels that the Biden administration should be uh, you know, in more more opposition to Iran. And so does Israel, by the way. I want to go now to Capitol Hill, where the House is still without a speaker. On Wednesday, House Republicans nominated Louisiana Congressman Steve Scalise as House Speaker during a closed-door meeting of their conference. But by Thursday night, it was clear he did not have the votes in the full House to win the speakership. I just share with my colleagues that I'm withdrawing my name as a candidate for the speaker-designee. Wendy, what is going on here, and what has kept Scalise from sealing the deal? 
Good question. Um, well, Scalise stepped down, particularly because, like any litigator who doesn't ask a witness a question he knows the answer to, a good politician doesn't go up for a vote. He doesn't know how it's going to turn out. And um, Scalise, it was very, very clear yesterday that Steve Scalise did not have anywhere near the 217 votes he needed to become Speaker. Um, the trouble is that the only other announced candidate so far, Jim Jordan, who on a sort of spectrum of right to very right to very, very right, Jim Jordan is more conservative even than Steve Scalise. Um, he only has 99 votes and Trump's endorsement for what that's worth. So it is, they are right now in just a paralysis. They cannot pass legislation. They cannot um, you know, speed the aid to Israel that, that the administration and Republicans want to speed over there. Um, there is some talk while they're working this out of, um, and I think they are meeting again, even as we're on right now. Um, there is some talk of giving the acting speaker pro tem, who is Patrick McHenry, um, extra powers. Right now, there's really not much he can do except hold a gavel. Um, but they're thinking even Democrats might go along with giving him some extra power so some of this emergency legislation can get done. And remember, we are facing a government shutdown on November 17th. You know, on the question of who might be an alternative, we got this from Phil in Indianapolis, who says, how about Liz Cheney for speaker? She might be able to bring in Democrats along with many moderate Republicans, solid conservative record. I don't know what you think about that, Idris. I mean, what kinds of conversations must the GOP House members be having right now as they've struggled to unite around a speaker? Um, I would bet a very, very large sum of money that Liz Cheney is not going to be the next speaker of the House. Um, <laughs> I, I, I'd put, put my bet in that hat as well. Um, but, you know, the, the trouble is the ungovernable Republican caucus. Um, Steve Scalise managed to win a majority of the Republicans in a closed door meeting. But in order to become speaker, he needs to secure 217 Republican votes, uh, basically a unanimous decision. And there are enough holdouts that we're going to deny him uh, that speakership. But uh, if you see uh, the other alternatives, you you see the same problem recur. So Jim Jordan, the presumptive, um, you know, most likely next person up for the worst job in Washington. Um, he also has a lot of defectors who say that they won't vote for him, uh, who were uh, turned off in great deal by his refusal to endorse Steve Scalise after he won the um, uh, the kind of primary vote, uh, if you will. Um, what happens after? Well, I think you just have this eternal recurrence. I mean, we saw uh, Kevin McCarthy sit through 15, uh, I believe, votes uh, at the start of January. I think you're you're in line for a similar level of of uh, chaos. And uh, obviously, as, as Wendy pointed out, there's quite a lot that the House ought to be looking at and considering, but uh, it's going to be paralyzed until this is all sorted out. You know, Alex, Wendy mentioned the need to, you know, fund the government, but uh, what could a speakerless House mean for foreign policy? We were just talking about the situation in the Middle East, I think, of funding for Ukraine. The truth is that we really aren't – this is part of the reason why you know, she was mentioning before they might empower Patrick McHenry, uh, McHenry to do a little bit more in order to pass some of these uh, you know, supplemental bills, not just Israel, but you have Ukraine aid too and many other just appropriations bills. My sense – and this could change – I mean – 
is that until they figure this out, they are going to basically reach back into deep uh, precedents, you know, going back to 1918 and to 1998. There have been precedents for sort of speaker pro temps being able to do a little bit more. They are going to try to figure out a way to make the government run uh, while they don't have like a consensus on a speaker. I also, you know, would keep an eye on uh, there is still a chance that at the end of this, at the end of this whole thing, Kevin McCarthy is back at being speaker, um, and I don't just because they they cannot find a consensus on anybody else, and that was honestly part of the reason why he became speaker earlier this year after 15 rounds of voting is because I don't know if there's anyone that can get that many you know to the majority of the house. We've got a couple of related questions from listeners that I'll put to you, Wendy. First of all, Will says, has a Speaker of the House ever been elected with significant votes from the minority party? Is there any chance moderate Republicans and moderate Democrats band together to elect a bipartisan Speaker? And Jay asks, what is the possibility of electing Hakeem Jeffries to the Speakership, the minority leader? So uh, those are sort of related questions. It's hard enough for the Republicans to come together. Any chance the Republicans or some of them come together with Democrats? here? Well, there is certainly the beginnings of the rumblings of that. And I can't, I'll have to Google for for the first question or the question of whether this has ever happened before. Um, But the, on terms of where they are now, Mike Rogers, no bleeding heart liberal. This guy is a Republican from Alabama. He is chairman of House Foreign, uh, yeah, uh, Armed Services, excuse me. And he was sort of saying yesterday the only way this is going to happen is with democratic support. Matt Gates immediately came out and argued with him about that. But the um but the notion of Hakeem Jeffries or a consensus candidate who might be a Democrat or might be a Republican is not off the table right now. Um, and I think Democrats sort of are enjoying politically watching Republicans in this awful squirmy situation. But at some point, they also know that their voters want them to get some of this stuff done. And they may be willing to um, to coalesce around someone if that person emerges. And there's no sign that that person is there. It's not Kevin McCarthy. Do you see anyone like that emerging, Idris? Um, I, I think it's hard to predict um, uh, what, what's going to happen. I think Democrats are willing to throw some of their votes behind someone in exchange for uh, some concessions. Um, It was a similar approach that they offered to Kevin McCarthy. Uh, He probably could have saved his speakership by giving them something, and he refused to give them anything and basically said that there was no negotiation going on. So, um, you know, that's that was the end of that. you know, as as the uh, paralysis continues, uh, Republicans may get more desperate and therefore may be willing to cut a deal. But uh, I imagine the dysfunction is going to continue for quite a while. So many words come to mind. Dysfunction, quagmire, morass, stalemate. I mean, the list goes on and on. And in Asia, it's been a challenging year for the relationship between the U.S. and China. Remember that spy balloon back in February? It seems like 100 years ago. But Chinese President Xi Jinping said this week that there are, quote, a thousand reasons to make it work. Xi's remarks came as Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer traveled to China along with a bipartisan group of five other U.S. senators. I also made a request, a direct request to President Xi, that the foreign ministry strengthen their statement on the Middle East, which didn't even mention the loss of the horrible, gut-wrenching loss of civilian life. 
That was Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, New York Democrat, speaking at a press conference during his visit to China earlier this week. The group cut the trip short because of the fighting in Gaza. Alex, China did later strengthen its statement condemning the killings by Hamas. How is this affecting U.S.-China relations at this sensitive time? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I hate to be the – but in the broader context guy in this conversation, but it, but I think you have to look at the China statement about Hamas in the context of the Ukraine-Russia war. So uh, it was it, it was notable that within this Israeli conflict, um, Vladimir Putin also was – you know, a little bit more equivocal in terms of his public statements, was not standing nearly as, in as much solidarity with Israel. You saw uh, Zelensky, in contrast, declare immediate solidarity with Israel. Now, China is aligned with Russia in this conflict. Also, you've seen relationships with Iran strengthen in uh, within this conflict as well. So, the whole point of making you know China be a little bit more you know condemn the actions should be viewed in the context of sort of this broader alliance and, and conflicts that you know we're at a state where there's only conflicts right now you know on the Gaza Strip and in Russia Ukraine but there's always this risk that it could continue to explode and so keeping you know the channels open in China are really critical to making sure that this these wars and uh, and battles do not expand into a much broader worldwide conflict. Sticking with Capitol Hill for a minute, turning now to charges against New Jersey Senator Bob Menendez. This week, federal prosecutors charged the Democratic senator with conspiring to act as a foreign agent, including accusing Menendez of aiding the Egyptian government by providing sensitive intelligence. This comes after he and his wife were indicted last month on bribery charges, including accepting cash, gold bars, and a luxury car. Wendy, how big of a deal are these new charges? They're huge. I mean, there there is a tremendously significant um, addition to the to the already significant indictment that he has. He is the or was, I should say, the chairman of Senate Foreign Relations. That is the committee that um, you know provides aid, provides uh, you know diplomatic direction. is is very influential on U.S. foreign policy. And the fact that he might have been, as prosecutors claim, he and his wife, an unregistered agent, essentially, of Egypt. In other words, working on Egypt's behalf, lobbying for what they wanted from his perch as chairman of Senate Foreign Relations. If that's true, that is um, hugely significant. And on the other side of the aisle, New York Republican Congressman George Santos faces his own new criminal charges. That indictment adds 10 new charges to an existing 13 counts of financial crimes. Santos pleaded not guilty to the previous ones. The new charges include claims that he stole identities and credit card information to support his political campaign and also his own pockets. Um, Idris, what's different about this new set of charges against Congressman Santos? Well, they add to an already... um astonishing list of of charges, and they um, have increased at the moment calls within his own party for him to resign. Um, So six fellow uh, Republican freshmen from the state of New York uh, in Congress have introduced a motion to expel him. Uh, That might be a hard lift. It requires a vote of two-thirds of the House to actually get rid of uh, a member like George Santos. But uh, like like Senator Menendez, uh, Santos has no intention of resigning and is planning to, uh, I guess, wait until the, the trial is over before uh, before the issue is forced or uh, until voters 
uh, kick either man out. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of holding in Washington. This week, House Republicans introduced a resolution to expel Santos, which is something that Democrats had wanted to do earlier on. Why now, Alex? Well, because they sense an opportunity. And, and let, let's look at the politics here. The Republicans have a very narrow majority, Anything that and, and it's created chaos. Anything Democrats can do to further that chaos would be, you know, I think is, is part of their play here. So the thing is, you know, if you have a um, – you know, con- you know, Congressman Santos now has this long litany of charges in these uh, indictments. Um, if you can try to make hay out of them, that is that is what they're doing. I don't think uh, they're. I think they are. The Republicans are going to wait and see mm-hmm. and let him uh, have a stay in court. We're going to take a quick break, but before we do, on Sunday, Kenyan runner Kevin Kipton almost ran a sub-two-hour race in Chicago wearing a special pair of Nikes. He still set the world record at two hours and 35 seconds. That comes two weeks after Ethiopia's Tigsit Asefa set the women's world record in Berlin with a two-hour, 11-minute run after crossing the finish line. She took off her Adidas and kissed it. Another renowned athlete won a hard-fought contest this week, Mama Bear 128 Grazer. She's heading into winter at an estimated 700 pounds at Katmai National Park. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Viore. Jump into a new perspective on performance apparel. Viore makes products that stand the test of time and hope to inspire others to live vibrant, healthy lives, empowering your best life in clothing that can be worn for just about any activity from running to yoga. Visit viore.com NPR to receive 20% off your first purchase and enjoy free shipping on any U.S. orders over $75. Discover the versatility of Viore clothing. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. When you keep your stress bottled up, it can eat away at you. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to make them better. Try BetterHelp Online Therapy, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp at BetterHelp.com NPR today to get 10% off your first month. This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on. Now more than ever, your business faces unique challenges and opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services, all tailored to your short- and long-term goals. Backed by the strength and stability of a top-10 commercial bank, their dedicated experts work with you to build lasting success. Explore the possibilities at CapitalOne.com slash commercial, a member FDIC. Let's get back to the news roundup and turn now to the presidential race. On Monday, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. announced that he would be leaving the Democratic Party and running for president as an independent. Finally, we declare independence from the two political parties and the corrupt interests that dominate them and the entire rigged system of rancor, of rage, of corruption, of lies that has turned government officials into indentured servants for their corporate bosses. Kennedy is perhaps best known for spreading vaccine skepticism and conspiracy theories. Alex, how could this move of his toward an independent run affect the presidential race? It could be huge because he has... 
Well, I say it could be completely meaningless or it could be decisive. In a 50-50 race, every which is what the last several presidential elections have been, any small thing can matter. If you look in um in 2016, obviously the um you know, Jill Stein's votes in the three critical states were sufficient in order if Hil- if all those votes had gone to Hillary Clinton, Hillary Clinton would have become would become president. Robert F. Kennedy has significant name ID, um, you know, given his family's legacy. Also, I would say, you know, his policy positions are attractive to a part of the electorate that feels very disaffected and very disillusioned with the establishment of both parties. Now, what's really interesting to me is that this last nine months, conservative media has been really platforming RFK Jr. in a huge way. Um, in part, honestly, if I if I in order to for mischief making, in order to really sort of hurt Joe Biden in the primary. Now that has coincided with the fact that RFK Jr. has now become less popular with Democrats and more popular with Republicans. So what could end up so at first, it was only going to really hurt Joe Biden. But now as an independent candidate, you do have a situation in which he, he may take more Republican votes than Democratic votes in the general election. And in fact, could end up being decisive in a, helping reelect Joe Biden rather than helping uh, the Republican candidate. And you say one small thing can make a big difference potentially. And it's not just one small thing necessarily. Last week, presidential candidate Cornell West also switched from the Green Party to an independent. So lots of moving parts here. You know, Wendy, I wonder what you think. Who might these moves help or hurt the most? Well, I think Alex makes a good point that that somebody like RFK Jr., who who follows along with some of the sort of Trump MAGA world people's um, views on things like vaccines, it may pull some away from him. But the one thing that RFK needs, RFK Jr. needs, and and all the other Republican candidates and Cornell West, they need money. They need to compete with an incredibly well-funded incumbent president who not only has campaign money, but the White House behind him, and um, and Trump's money and popularity. And so, you know, for them to have an impact, they're going to have to raise some money and really, really get out there. And I haven't yet seen the donors uh, line up for these. But voters don't want either Trump or Biden. So maybe maybe as we continue through the primaries, they're... they're um, popularity will grow. Moving on to other news of the week, Caroline Ellison took the stand in Manhattan this week to testify against FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried. Ellison was the CEO of Bankman-Fried's hedge fund, Alameda Research. She's also his ex-girlfriend. Several news outlets, including NBC, CNN, and NPR, have referred to her as the Fed's star witness in the case against Bankman-Fried. Alex, what has she shared so far in her testimony? What have we learned? You know, she has really contradicted much of the public narrative around Sam Bankman-Fried. And, you know, essentially there has been this narrative that the money that went, quote unquote, missing or the shortfall, you know, the $8 billion that was in what was Alameda um, instead of the – and it was depositor money from FTX – you know, that it was basically ignorance, that it was a clerical error um, is sort of what Sam Bankman-Fried ha- has has been suggesting. And, you know, her testimony really point, you know, paints a picture of the fact that they were very aware that they needed more money in Alameda uh, in order to shore up their loans and that Sam was pushing 
them to put more money into it uh, from FTX. So she is really contradicting um, you know, some of the public narrative that Sam was putting out at the time, that their finances were fine, and also some of the, the aftermath. Um, I also, you know, just it, the, the fact that they were, you know, were partners while he was her boss, I think is also just like, I have to say, like a cautionary tale about <laughs> dating, dating subordinates and dating at work in, in general. Sure enough. Uh, We'll be keeping an eye on that trial as it progresses, and we'll also be watching the Supreme Court as they prepare to issue rulings this term. This week, the court called into question a lower court ruling that found a congressional district in South Carolina was illegally gerrymandered along racial lines. So back in 2019, the Supreme Court said that federal courts do not have the authority to rule on partisan gerrymandering. Idris, how is this case related to that previous ruling? Well, this this touches on a very active area of litigation, which is not about partisan gerrymandering, but racial gerrymandering and whether or not um, states in the South are using race uh, in order to draw their lines uh, for partisan advantage. Um, And, you know, the Supreme Court surprised a lot of people um, last year when they uh, struck down uh, lines that were drawn in Alabama. Um, and so that they were imp- had impermissibly uh, used race. Uh, the case that they just heard in South Carolina examines a very similar challenge. Uh, there was an earlier uh, court ruling, which has now come up, in which uh, the litigants successfully argued uh, that the map had illegally split up black neighborhoods in Charleston, um, resulting in in districts being allocated to the Republican advantage. Um, but uh, you know, this is going to be a closely watched case. Uh, a lot of this stems from an earlier 2014 decision called Shelby County v. Holder, uh, which eliminated the preclearance requirement that a lot of states had uh, in place where they had to check with the federal government uh, in order to change their lines as a result of of Jim Crow and other things. Um, But, you know, it was active all over the South, uh, Louisiana, Texas, Georgia, all of them uh, have redrawn lines after the the new census, and all of them are in uh, litigation at the moment. Yeah, Wendy, what are you watching for with this case? And what do you see as the larger implications beyond even South Carolina? Oh, yeah. The larger implications are uh, will stretch across the country when the Supreme Court rules on this because uh, gerrymandering has really become an Olympic sport in both parties. Um, you know, the margins are so close now. The country is so divided that any advantage um, that a party can get, um, you know, by drawing the maps is... is um, is a big deal for them. But the, the other question, the other problem is that I don't think, you know, you can rely as much on saying one ethnic group votes one way or one racial group votes one way. And so let's move them all into a different district. I mean, the, the, um, the African-American vote, you know, has largely been democratic. I think it's beginning to peel off a little bit. Um, the Republicans are getting, you see, the African-American candidates on the Republican side of the field. Um, And the Latino vote is also um, much more diverse than I think either party has given them credit for. Now for an update on strikes. This week, negotiations broke down between actors represented by SAG-AFTRA and the Hollywood studios. And we should note some staff at NPR and WAMU are members of SAG-AFTRA's media union, which is not involved in these strikes. On Wednesday, 8,700 members of the United Auto Workers Union walked off the job at Ford's truck plant in Kentucky. So with the economic disruption these strikes are causing to Hollywood and to the auto industry, Alex, how are these negotiations progressing? You know, SAG-AFTRA, 
it feels like um, that this is going to get done because they already resolved the writer's strike. And that this seems to have just been one, uh, you know, one one extra hurdle that was unexpected. You know, one thing that's been a real talking point still is AI, you know, and, and the use of some of these, you know, just, uh, um, you know, AI created imagery, you know, replacing actors in some cases. Um, and so I think they are at the five yard line, but it looks like they probably will get get there. UAW is more complicated. Now they have talked that there has been made, pro- that there has been uh, progress made, but the polit- politics of this are potentially very dangerous for President Biden. Now he did make history as the first president to go on the, um, to go on the picket line, but that was, they resisted that move until Donald Trump made clear that he was going to go and try to visit with people. Now the, the leadership of UAW has said that Donald Trump is a member of the billionaire class, essentially a, a fake populist. Uh, but Donald Trump is trying to peel off a lot of the membership of these unions and basically say that they aren't really – that Joe Biden is you know, focusing on electric vehicles and, and such is not on your side. And the reason why this matters is – UAW's membership is highly concentrated in the upper – there's a lot of membership in the upper Midwest, and those are many of the swing states. You know, uh, Obviously, Michigan, Wisconsin, you have a very competitive Senate race in Ohio, uh, Pennsylvania. So this is why it is a very fraught political uh, matter, and the longer this drags on, the potential uh, more consequence for Joe Biden um, if ends up that some of these members don't you know, feel disaffected. Mm-hmm. In news that might make tasting the rainbow a little less tempting, California's enacting what's being called the Skittles ban, even though the candies will still be on the shelves. It would take a lot for me to not eat Skittles. I'll be totally honest. Um, Alex, this fight is all about food additives, though. What is California actually banning and what are the harmful effects they could have? So... There are four different substances that they that that you know are very concentrated, especially in junk food. So you know beyond the the whole Skittles thing, and originally the original bill in California, there was uh, um, an extra additive. I'm gonna mispronounce it, something titanium. I don't know. They but, say you're not supposed to eat it if you can't pronounce it, but that has never stopped me. <laughs> um, and but they took that out in the in the final bill. But um, you know stuff like Peeps. Stuff like YooHoo, you know, those those materials may not be available when this bill goes into effect in 2027, unless the companies make significant changes in how they make them. Now, they say there are concerns about causing cancer and stuff. You're going to have to get a scientist on here to explain, it, you know, the veracity of the science one way or another. Mm-hmm. But what I can what I can tell you in the the main complaint here is that. We have a national food regulation system, and the complaint from the industry side is that Governor Governor Newsom is essentially making a different set of standards for what is okay in California and the rest of the country, which means you could have some states that allow certain foods and then other states that don't have certain foods. Um, now, Governor Newsom says, well, the science is the science. Like, I'm going to protect Californians. And so you do have this really fascinating standoff um, with the state of California and, you know, sort of the national food regulation system. And I think this is – this as there's been more scrutiny on some of the chemicals and additives 
in food. Uh, I think that this may be the beginning of this fight, not the end. Well, this isn't really a new fight, right? I mean, Idris, I'm not sure if you've reported on this, but my understanding is California has often been at the forefront of health and environmental regulations, and it's a big, powerful state. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, in in matters that are consequential, like uh, carbon emissions, but also if you go to, I remember many Starbucks in California have signs that say that coffee might cause cancer, and many things in California have signs that say that uh, many things might cause cancer. So, uh, you know, this is a bit of California being California. Gavin Newsom at the signing ceremony um, held up a, uh, a package of European Skittles, which uh, did not contain the additives and uh, pointed that as the direction that uh, California might go to. Um, but I think that there are better things to eat in Europe than Skittles. So Probably. Um, but, you know, you're going at my two addictions, sugar I'm and caffeine. <laughs> which, which aid was dispatched to Europe to fly back the Skittles? To get the Skittles. I want to know the backstory of how they obtained the bag of Skittles. Lastly today, congratulations in order for Claudia Golden. She's this year's Nobel Prize winner in economics. Not only is she the first woman to win the economics prize by herself, she's only the third woman to win in 55 years. Her work includes research on women's career and educational choices when given access to birth control. It also documents the effects of how motherhood and caregiving affect the gender pay gap. Wendy, how big of a deal is this win? It feels great. It feels great not only because a woman won and no, the Nobel judges don't have a great history on giving the prize to women, but the also because she was dealing with a real economic issue that women have been struggling to um, have taken seriously for many, many, many decades, which is caregiving in the home, the cost of daycare as opposed to working, whether your salary is worth the daycare cost, and, and whether, you know, stay-at-home uh, mothers uh, co- you know, contribute to the economy, which we all know they do. So um, it's, it was hugely significant and, a, and a, a refreshing thing to see. That's Wendy Benjaminson, Washington Senior Editor for Bloomberg News. My thanks also to Alex Thompson, National Political Correspondent for Axios, and Idris Kaloon, the Washington Bureau Chief for The Economist. And thank you all for joining us for this edition. Thank you all for joining us for this edition of the News Roundup. Coming up, this week's attacks on Israel and Gaza will change the Middle East forever. But will the days ahead bring more chaos or stability? We'll consider how these past seven days will determine what happens in the days, weeks, and years to come. Stay with us for the global edition of the News Roundup. This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with its original podcast on investing. Each week, hosts Lizanne Saunders, Schwab's chief investment strategist, and Kathy Jones, Schwab's chief fixed income strategist, along with their guests, analyze economic developments and bring context to conversations around stocks, fixed income, the economy, and more. Download the latest episode and subscribe at schwab.com slash oninvesting or wherever you get your podcasts. This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with their original podcast, Choiceology. Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind people's decisions. Download the latest episode and subscribe at schwab.com slash podcast. Let's turn to the global edition of the News Roundup, and let's get into the latest from Gaza and Israel. We'll start with a peace activist and hostage negotiator. Then we'll take a closer look at how Gazans are being affected, Israeli domestic politics, and the fears of this war sparking a wider regional conflict. 
Today, Israeli defense forces called for the evacuation of more than a million Gazan civilians from their homes. And the Israeli government says the siege on 2.3 million people in Gaza will continue until Israeli hostages are released. The country's energy minister told reporters, quote, No electrical switch will be turned on, no water hydrant will be opened, and no fuel truck will enter. More than 100 hostages were taken into Gaza during Hamas's deadly attacks on Israel last weekend. What hope is there for those being held captive? We're going to start with an interview Jen recorded earlier with Gershon Baskin. He's a prominent peace activist who's been involved in various initiatives to resolve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. He negotiated the release of Israeli soldier Gilad Shalit from Hamas captivity in 2011, and he has a friend who is currently being held hostage. Baskin joined us from Jerusalem and told us more. The person I know is a, is a friend for more than 30 years, a woman named Vivian Silver. She's an Israeli who originates from Canada. She's a veteran peace activist. And she lived on Kibbutz Be'eri, which is right next to the Gaza border. She was involved already in the 1980s in, a, in an Israeli-Palestinian peace organization that worked with the Bedouin community in the Negev. Then she got involved with a group of Israelis um, who lived next to Gaza called Another Voice, and they would go out and demonstrate all the time whenever there was a military action taken against Gaza. Um, they had weekly phone calls with people in Gaza to establish links. We worked with them. I worked with them, particularly with a, a Gaza youth organization that did some joint activities on both sides of the border. And in more recent years, Vivian was one of the founders and directors of Women Wage Peace, which is Israel's largest peace movement with 60,000 women in Israel who were part of that movement. And, and Vivian was one of the um, forces behind that movement. Um, she's a mother and a grandmother and a wonderful woman. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby told reporters of the West Wing on Wednesday that the number known to be held hostage by Hamas could rise. I think we all need to steel ourselves for the very distinct possibility that these numbers will will keep increasing and that we may, in fact, find out that more Americans uh, are part of the hostage pool. Given your experience, Gershon, how concerned are you that Hamas will follow through with its threat to kill those they've captured if Israel moves forward with unannounced strikes. Yeah, I I think we should take the threat very seriously. It's not part of the rule book, the textbook of Hamas. It's taken right out of ISIS and not Hamas. Uh, But the the brutal killing spree on the Gaza-Israel border that we saw on Saturday with the brutality that was demonstrated was not also from the Hamas playbook. It was taken out of ISIS. Now, I've been told that Hamas's original plans were much more limited action, that they intended to attack two military bases and abduct soldiers to hold them as hostage. But the ease at which the border was breached opened it up to a whole lot of other fighting forces, both from Hamas, but from Islamic Jihad and from the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine and other militants who who apparently are behind the more brutal actions. But Let's face the reality on the ground. More than 2.2 million people in Gaza now have no electricity, no food, no water, uh, no medical supplies. Israel is flattening the area with bombardments. And very soon, a ground operation will begin to go after the Hamas leadership and fighters. And their backs are going to be against the wall. When they held one Israeli soldier for five years and four months, 
they were able to keep it secret where he was. That was one of the amazing successes of Hamas is that they kept this soldier in captivity for five years and four months without Israel ever knowing where he was. That's not possible if they're holding more than 100 hostages. Even if they're dispersed around the Gaza Strip, it's a small territory, very densely populated. Intelligence leaks will will get out there and the Israelis will send in special forces to try and rescue them, in, in which case soldiers and and hostages are likely to be killed. We don't have the kind of miracles that we saw in 1974 with the Antebi raid where Israel flew into Uganda and rescued a whole plane load of, of, of people who were hijacked to Uganda with only one soldier, who, by the way, was Netanyahu's brother, who was killed. He was the only casualty of that raid. And and you're referring there to Israeli soldier Galad Shalit, who was released from Hamas captivity in, right. in 20. 11 you helped negotiate that release in in this current situation what room if any do you see for negotiation right now at this moment i don't see any room for negotiation if we look at the shalit case i opened up a secret direct channel between israel and hamas a week after he was abducted it took three months to produce proof of life when gilad shalit wrote a handwritten written letter directed to his parents that was delivered by hamas to the egyptians um, that was my work. And then it took a, more or less another five years before Israel and Hamas were seriously willing to negotiate. Once that happened, my secret back channel became official, and we were able to move the negotiations much uh, further and faster than in the five years previously. I don't see any willingness of Israel and Hamas to negotiate at this point. It's way too early, unless by some miracle someone comes up with an idea that that enables some kind of negotiated agreement. I've been trying to push, as have others, the immediate release of women and children because there's a large number of women and children amongst the hostages. I have a close friend whose 12 of his relatives were abducted from Kibbutz Be'eri, the same kibbutz as Vivian Silver. And one of them is quite old. He was abducted with his Filipina caretaker and he needs medicine. If he doesn't get his medicine, he's gonna die. Hamas has a record of treating prisoners well. But this is a, a, a different situation, and we can't depend that they're going to be treated well. And we can't. We know probably that Hamas is not the only one holding these uh, hostages, Islamic Jihad and other groups as well. And, and where are you hearing about these other groups that, that are now involved? Yeah, I'm talking to people in Gaza, both from Hamas and other people in Gaza. I'm speaking to directly to two Hamas leaders. On the political level, I have no contacts in the military wing. I've sent messages to several Hamas leaders who are outside in Qatar and in other places. I don't believe that they have a full understanding of the trauma that occurred in Israel and the resolve of the Israeli government to remove Hamas from power, which means a reoccupation of Gaza. Because for 18 years, we've heard Israelis make statements about removing Hamas, cutting the head of the snake off, etc., etc., all these kind of slogans. But we, we've grown to learn that these are slogans and no one really takes them seriously. But I, I advise us all, including Hamas, to take it seriously today. There seems to be an Israeli resolve to, as they say, get the job done. And the public in Israel expects the government to get the job done, which means removing Hamas from power, which basically means killing them all. And, and to your mind, what does that mean for civilians, the civilian population in Gaza? Tragedy. I, there are already equal number of dead people in Gaza to those killed in Israel, which is more than 1,300. 
there will be a lot more civilian casualties. I'm appealing to, I put out on Twitter, and I don't know how else to do this, but I'm appealing to the United States to offer President Sisi of Egypt a billion dollars to open up the Rafah-Egypt border crossing and to set up camps to enable Palestinians who want to evacuate during the war to northern Sinai. After the war, they can go back home. But we need to get people out of the line of fire. I have a bomb shelter in my home. Israelis are mostly protected, not all, but mostly. There are no bomb shelters in Gaza. There are no places for people to run. And there will be a humanitarian disaster. It's already happening in Gaza, and it'll be a lot worse. And at the end of the day, when this is all over, and I hope we have our Belfast moment, when we realize that we've suffered enough and the trauma is deep enough, that we get back to the table and face each other and figure out how to live together rather than how to kill each other, that we have neighbors that we're going to have to live with and help them build their lives again and build Gaza and make Gaza into a place where people can live. It should be an ideal piece of real estate right on the Mediterranean coast. It could be a Riviera. It could be an ideal place for people if we had a different mindset. Gershon, I can imagine this is a very difficult time for you as someone who's been working as a peace activist for so long. How are you maintaining that vision in this current moment? There are a couple of things. One is that I have contact with Palestinians throughout the occupied territories and in the Palestinian diaspora. These are human contacts between myself and them. And we've known each other for many years. And for me, this is not an, uh, uh, a conflict in some imaginary world. This is real. We all know people who have suffered, who have paid the price, who have been killed. And we're all here and we're not going anywhere. At the end of this conflict, at the end of this war, like all the other battles that we've had, we're all going to remain here. And and that that forces me to be hopeful that we will be smart enough to do better than we've done. Another thing is that no one expected, no one could have predicted the fall of the Soviet Union and the Berlin Wall or the freeing of Nelson Mandela two years later becoming president of a democratic South Africa. Who could have imagined that? So anything is possible here. Plus, I think what keeps me going is that my mind is constantly working on new ideas and initiatives. I was just before this call on chat with one of the Hamas leaders where I am testing the waters for an idea for some kind of deal to be made. I don't want to go into details, but uh, this is what I do. This is how I keep my sanity by trying to create the future that I want to live. That's Gershon Baskin, an author and peace activist who spent years working with those trying to resolve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. He negotiated the release of Israeli soldier Gilad Shalit from Hamas captivity in 2011, and he spoke to Jen White from his home in Jerusalem. Now let's welcome our panel. Joining us today is Emily Tampkin. She's a reporter and author of the book Bad Jews, A History of American Jewish Politics and Identities. Also with us also with us is Anton LaGuardia, diplomatic editor at The Economist and author of War Without End, Israelis, Palestinians, and the Struggle for a Promised Land. And Youssef Munayer is head of the Palestine-Israel program and a senior fellow at the Arab Center here in Washington, D.C. The Arab Center is a nonprofit, independent, and nonpartisan research organization. Thank you all for joining us. The humanitarian crisis for 2.3 million people trapped in the Gaza Strip is worsening by the day. 
Gaza's only power plant has run out of fuel after Israel cut off deliveries of food, water, and power from entering the territory. And today, the Israeli Defense Forces announced that more than a million people living in northern Gaza need to evacuate to southern Gaza within the next 24 hours. To be clear, there is no current escape from Gaza itself, a blockaded strip of land that's one of the most densely populated places on Earth. The United Nations has called the order impossible and has asked for Israel to rescind it. The evacuation order is unprecedented and precedes an expected ground invasion by Israeli troops. So, Anton, I'll start with you. Just what is your reaction to this evacuation order? Well, the, you know, the arc of this story has turned into a tragedy of biblical proportions from the wanton killing of innocents on October the 7th as Hamas and others came over the border and um, uh, killed more than 1,000 people. And now uh, a scale of Palestinian deaths that um, uh, is of the same scale and um, uh, this mass movement of people which brings back memories, of course, of uh, previous waves of Palestinian refugees. Over and beyond whether this is even possible to move um, a million people through the narrow streets of Gaza amid the bombs where all infrastructure is increasingly damaged. So, um, I, you know, this is turning uh, uglier by the day. Yusuf, what do you know about the situation inside Gaza as residents are being told to evacuate their homes? Well, um, it, it, it's, it's total despair. Uh, there's no place for people to go. Uh, there's destruction everywhere. Uh, places that uh, people have been directed to go, both by the Israeli military and by international agencies, have been hit. Uh, by the Israeli military after people have went there. So there's no trust in any of these warnings or any of these agencies. I just want to say, though, for uh, people who are tuning into this issue and thinking uh, this is yet another episode of uh, an Israel-Gaza war, uh, this is very different than anything we've seen in the past. Uh, And Israeli officials today, more than ever before, are telegraphing their uh, absolute lack of concern for civilian casualties. In fact, they're, they're, they're saying they're resentful that anyone is asking about concern for civilian casualties. So uh, I think this moment is very, very grave. We are likely on the precipice of mass atrocities being carried out in the Gaza Strip. And if anybody has ever wondered what they would be doing if a genocide was about to unfold before their eyes, I think the answer is it's whatever you're doing in this moment. Yusuf, we heard the last speaker talk a moment ago about the possibility of a humanitarian corridor in Egypt. Do you have any hope of something like that happening? I don't think it's it's realistic in any way. Um, it's completely it completely lacks an understanding of the situation on the ground in Gaza. People can't move. People are terrified of leaving their houses. There's no trust in the authorities. And I have to say there is a political motive behind this entire arrangement or the attempt to put forward this arrangement, and that's to displace responsibility on the military that is involved here, the Israeli military, which under international law has responsibility for the protection of the civilian population. And the Israeli government is hoping to displace that responsibility on the Egyptians and on Palestinians and effectively saying, Well, look, we tried, so it doesn't matter how many civilians get killed. Don't blame us. So I think there is is a false choice being presented now between ethnic cleansing, which, of course, 
has a deep and traumatic history in, in the Palestinian experience and, and mass atrocities and genocide. We must reject this. And I think the most important thing right now is for uh, uh, calls to back away from the brink of this. Meanwhile, the United Nations is warning that attempting to evacuate so many people will have calamitous consequences. Nabil Farsak, a spokesperson for the Palestinian Red Crescent in Gaza City, said this to the Associated Press, forget about food, forget about electricity, forget about fuel. The only concern now is just if you'll make it, if you're going to live. Yesterday, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres spoke about the desperate need to allow for humanitarian aid into Gaza. International humanitarian law must be respected and upheld. About 220,000 Palestinians are now sheltered in 92 UNRWA facilities across Gaza. UN premises and all hospitals, schools and clinics must never be targeted. UN staff are working around the clock to support the people of Gaza, and I deeply regret that some of my colleagues have already paid the ultimate price. Emily, how is Israel responding to these calls from the UN and others to spare the lives of civilians in Gaza? Yeah, I would say um, three things. The first is that Israeli, the sort of Israeli powers that be are, are not, there's not even really a pretense that they're trying to spare civilian life. Um, you heard from the defense minister and also, as, as was mentioned at the top of the show, the energy minister, that food, water and electricity would be turned off. Um, former Prime Minister Naftali Bennett responded with outrage when he was asked about Palestinian civilians. Um, the far-right finance minister, Smotrich, said that this was a time for maximum cruelty and not to worry about the hostages. And just today, Israeli President Herzog said basically all civilians are accountable. Um, the two other things that I would say is that there are voices saying that civilians should be spared, and they, those are coming from, in many cases, the families and friends of Israeli hostages and victims, but they're obviously not the ones making the decision. And then finally, I just want to note um, that the U.S. government is echoing the Israeli position. You know, I was listening to NPR on NPR on Tuesday, and um, John Kirby of the Pentagon was asked about, you know, they're withholding water and, and food and fuel and, sorry, food and electricity. Um, and his response was, well, they were always going to be aggressive in the first few days, as though there's like a caveat for war crimes. Um, so that's the Israeli position, and it's at present the position of the United States as well. Anton, what are Israel's options here? They don't have very good options, not least because they have set themselves an impossible target, which is to eradicate uh, Hamas, um, as you heard earlier from uh, Gershon Baskin. And uh, Hamas is, uh, yes, a terrorist movement, but it's also a militia and it's also a political party uh, that's deeply rooted uh, in Palestinian society. And I think the biggest problem is that they don't have a vision of how to do this. They can use military force, um, but um, if they really mean to try and eradicate Hamas, that means a reoccupation of Gaza at the least, which they have uh, wanted to avoid in the past because it was so costly to hold on to Gaza. Now that they found out that it's too costly to ignore Gaza and try to control it from the border fence. So um, uh, their, their big, the big hole in their strategy is that they don't have a sense of what comes the day after they've done this operation, even if you assume it can be successful. Anton, I also want to ask you about Egypt. We spoke a moment ago about this, but Egypt will allow aid to be distributed across its border with the Gaza Strip. However, according to Egyptian security sources, the country has not agreed to the safe passage of Palestinian refugees fleeing violence. What role could Egypt play in this? And, and, and how important has it been in the past as a mediator? 
So in the past, Egypt has been important as a mediator and bringing about the end of previous rounds of fighting between uh, uh, Israel and Hamas in Gaza. Uh, it has obviously a historic role. It used to rule the Gaza Strip um, uh, until it was uh, pushed out in 1967 and they have no desire to go back. Um, they are also very worried about what uh, about the spillover and uh, having large uh, populations of Palestinians being pushed into Sinai. And you've heard uh, President Sisi say, no, on certain terms, the you know the question of Palestine will not be resolved at the expense of other countries, i.e., us, Egypt. So I think they will be very reluctant to. Uh, admit a, a a mass exodus of people into Sinai. They might concede to small numbers of people, foreign citizens, people in particular humanitarian need, perhaps pregnant women or women with children and so on. But I do not expect them to agree to a large number of people. I want to hear from the UN agency charged with assisting and protecting Palestinian refugees that provides health care, education, and social services in the Gaza Strip. Yesterday, we spoke with Tamra Al-Rifai. She's the communications manager for that group, which is the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees, also known as UNRWA. She says staff from her agency are among the victims in Gaza. We communicate our locations precisely to call for them to be spared and protected. But unfortunately, over the last few days, around 20 of our buildings were hit um, with damages to varying degrees. And even more tragically, 12 of my colleagues uh, in Gaza uh, were killed in the last few days. Yusuf, what is UNRWA asking for in order to continue its work to help civilians there? Look, um, humanitarian aid agencies play a huge role in the Gaza Strip in normal circumstances to the extent that circumstances there could ever be normal. Uh, And they have long been under strain uh, providing support for a uh, civilian population that has been under siege for a decade and a half. Um, There's there's no way to put a Band-Aid on this. Uh, the, the only thing that anybody with a humanitarian impulse can be calling for now is an end to the bombardment. Um, there's, as I said, no safe place. Uh, members of, of UNRWA have been attacked. Uh, UN facilities have been attacked. Um, workers for the uh, Red Crescent, which is, of course, the local affiliate of the International Committee on the Red Cross, uh, have been attacked even after coordinating, rescuing uh, the injured with the uh, Israeli military. Um, the number of bombs uh, that Israel has dropped on Gaza over the last six days uh, is more than the United States has dropped over Afghanistan in a year. Uh, this is happening in uh, a tiny space about twice the size of Washington, D.C., with 2.2 million people, half of whom are children. Um, this is not about getting food or supplies into Gaza. This is about urgent life or death decisions uh, that uh, involve stopping the bombing. I want to talk more about the situation on the ground in Gaza. Emily, health authorities and medical organizations there have accused Israel of intentionally targeting ambulances and hospitals. Israel insists that civilians are warned to evacuate before airstrikes and that Hamas d- deliberately uses civilians as human shields. How has Israeli leadership responded to claims that healthcare workers and facilities are being targeted? As you said, they say 
well, we give warning and well, they, you know, they're, it's, it's, we have to get Hamas. I think this time round, um, the line that we hear over and over is we need to make sure that we're going to completely wipe out Hamas's military capabilities so they can never hurt any Israeli again. Um, with, with respect to giving warning, you know, uh, technically, yes, Israel did give 24 hours for 1.1 million people to move out of uh, North Gaza. But the issue there is that one, the UN has said that there's no way, you, you, you can't give a warning for such a thing. And also, hospitals are there, and they're full. And people, if they move, will, will die. If they're not, you know, if they're not bombed, they'll, they'll, they'll die in the sort of forced displacement. And so the idea that, well, this is just necessary, or, well, we gave them warning, sort of doesn't, um, is unfortunately not reflected with the reality of the situation. Anton, this week, Human Rights Watch said that Israel used white phosphorus in military operations in Gaza and Lebanon, saying, quote, the use of such weapons puts civilians at risk of serious and long-term injury. Israel hasn't commented. How has the use of this munition complicated the humanitarian response, and has this been confirmed? Well, it's one more, it's one more uh, misery on top of other miseries that you're hearing about in Gaza. Uh, white phosphorus is, you know, is a munition of war. It's used to uh, create smoke screens or to mark targets. Um, uh, Israel has said it doesn't, uh, uh, you know, it, it would, res in submissions to the Supreme Court, Israel said it would uh, highly restrict the use of this in built-up areas, but it did not want to rule it out completely because there were a number of unspecified cases in which it thought it might be of use and that was, justification was accepted by the judge. Um, in this case, it appears to have been used over the port. What the circumstances were, who knows? And therefore, you know, who, who knows what the legality of its use is? And, uh, but, you know, it causes extremely nasty wounds because phosphorus burrows its way down to your bone. Uh, even if you uh, bandage the wound, it can reignite when you open up the wound again. So it's nasty stuff. Disinformation about the war between Israel and Hamas has been rampant on social media. Old viral videos and clips from video games are circulating on WhatsApp, and some accounts of people posing as journalists have been taken down on X, formerly known as Twitter. On X, the disinformation and misinformation has been increasingly difficult to combat because users who pay the $8 subscription for a checkmark are boosted by the algorithm. Yusuf, how is this disinformation affecting people who are trying to get information about the war both in Gaza and Israel? Yeah, I mean, look, um, uh, social media has always been a cacophonous place uh, and, and not always a reliable place to get information, uh, especially in moments of uh, crisis uh, like this. Um, uh, at the same time, I think this entire dynamic is exacerbated by the fact that um, you're, you look for credible sources of information, and very few Western media outlets actually have correspondence on the ground in Gaza. Uh, with the ability to verify things that are going on. In fact, I think in terms of um, TV networks, it's only the BBC and Al Jazeera English who have, um, you know, uh, English-speaking uh, correspondents on the ground there. This makes it that much harder. Still, though, for uh, many people on the ground, social media is their only way of communicating to the rest of the world. And for those of us who have been following Palestinians in Gaza over the last several days, uh, they've been uh, posting or tweeting um, uh, about how uh, the world is forgetting them, 
sending information about what is happening happening to them, and many of them are saying that their batteries are about to die, of course, because there's no access to electricity, uh, and asking for people to still speak out on their behalf after they no longer can communicate to the rest of the world. Moving now to domestic Israeli politics. On Thursday, Israel's new emergency government was sworn in, bringing Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu together in a war cabinet with five members of the opposition party, including his political rival, Benny Gantz. Anton, how important will this war cabinet be in determining what comes next and how might they function? Well, I think the cabinet was an attempt to um, thread the needle for uh, Bibi Netanyahu. He knows that this terrible attack happened on his watch. He knows the country is divided. You've seen very large demonstrations against his government, particularly against the judicial uh, reforms, call it reforms, the clipping of the judicials, of the judiciary's powers to um, influence government decisions. Um, so uh, the country came in divided, and so he's trying to find unity. He's brought in Benny Gantz, who's one of the opposition leaders, but not the main one. The th- thing about him is that he has military experience as a former commander of the IDF. So he's giving military heft to his inner cabinet. He's also brought in a couple of other people, Yoav Gallant, the existing defense minister, and uh, Gadi Eisenkot, another former uh, military chief, as well as Ron Dermer, who is uh, Netanyahu's right-hand man. Now, this cabinet uh, uh, sits on top of the regular cabinet. So Netanyahu maintains his alliance with the far right of Israel, um, uh, so because he knows that in future he will still need them uh, to remain in power, knowing that he's likely to be gravely wounded by this attack. So it's, it gives a signal of unity. Yair Lapid, who is the main opposition leader, has not joined it because the far right is still involved in the cabinet, but further down uh, uh, on other political matters. The main political question of the war will be decided by this small cabinet. Emily, what did it take for this temporary government to come together? I mean, I think it's meant to, as Anton said, it's meant to show unity. It's also meant to, you know, it's something like four out of five Israelis blame um, Netanyahu and his government and do not trust them to lead this war. And so it's meant to sort of instill faith in the government and in the state as well. Um, It's also meant, and this is where I think things get a little complicated. It's it's meant to sort of sideline the far right. Um, the current national security minister, Ben Gavir, um, has, you know, in the weeks leading up to uh, Hamas's attack, was busying himself saying that Israeli settlers should claim all of the West Bank and saying that Palestinian prisoners should get a visit every other month and not every month um, and, and scheduling his provocative visits to, to Temple Mount. Um, so I've seen some analysis that says, well, at least he and, and Smotrich are now sidelined. Um, but I would suggest that if we look at what they have said and what they have called for and the policy that the Israeli government and military is pursuing, that indeed um, perhaps they've been sidelined in their positioning at the table, but their policies have not been. Um, so that's why Gantz is in the government. Um, that's sort of what it took to get him there. Um, and that's the, you know, sort of the, the reality of what the government actually means. Yusuf, there is some reporting coming out this week that the Israeli government and Israeli defense forces did not act on intelligence leading up to the Hamas attack. What kind of questions and criticism is the government facing right now as a result of that? Well, look, there is no doubt that this is the single biggest security failure in Israeli history. 
and what makes it that much more significant, it is it came out of a space like the Gaza Strip, which is the most surveilled and the most militarily policed space, perhaps on Earth, uh, and under the uh, supervision of a person like Benjamin Netanyahu, who's presented himself in Israeli politics as Mr. Security. So there's, there's no overstating uh, the, the, the failure here uh, and the implications that this will have uh, for Israeli politics. And Israelis shared their thoughts on this new unity government with Al Jazeera English. I want this to be good for everyone. We need calm and unity. They needed to stop with all this political mess. This is important to reassure the nation and all the parents that lost their loved ones and provide people with a sense of security. Anton, how likely is it going forward that Netanyahu will be able to unite the country at this point? Well, he is both the great survivor of Israeli politics, but he's also the great divider of Israeli politics. Um, And therefore, um, I think much will depend on the course of the war and whether in the Israeli debate, rather than the eyes of the world, he is deemed to have conducted a successful operation. Nevertheless, as uh, others have said, he is... He is weakened. This has happened in his watch. It's been a great failure, failure of the IDF as well. And uh, there will be a reckoning, although for now normal politics is suspended, but there will be commissions of inquiry, uh, people analyzing what went wrong. And uh, I cannot see quite that Netanyahu is going to come out strengthened from this. Earlier this week, journalist and author Barack Ravid was a guest on 1A. He spoke about calls for accountability within Israel over the surprise Hamas attacks that killed more than 1,300 people. I'll give you an example. One of the, an Israeli citizen whose sister was murdered by Hamas militants, they, they burned her body. And... And he gave... And he gave an interview uh, on Israeli television. And in, in one of the channels that supports uh, Netanyahu. And he, he said very clearly, and, and he's, a, he's a person that, that, is, that uh, voted in the past for Netanyahu. And he said that on the day after all of the politicians that were, that were part of it, all of the decision makers that were part of it will have to be held accountable. And I think that, again, if you, when you watch this video of this interview, you see the, the anger of, of this person. I think that represents what many, many Israelis feel. Youssef, you posted a poll on X from the Jerusalem Post. What did it say about Netanyahu's future? Well, it looks like uh, the vast majority of the Israelis are uh, pointing the finger at Netanyahu for the security failure. Um, But I think uh, beyond just being a security failure and an intelligence failure, uh, this also represents a failure of strategy and vision that's not only about Netanyahu, but really about Israel's entire relationship with the Gaza Strip, and by extension, its relationship with Palestinians. Uh, We are witnessing perhaps the 16th or 17th Israeli military operation in the Gaza Strip over the last 20 years. Each one has been uh, more horrific than the last, uh, and each one aimed at putting, you know, Palestinians down and, you know, teaching them a lesson. And each time that fails to resolve the problem. 
Um, there is a political problem here that requires a political solution. Um, and the approach from Israel has been essentially to try to, to, to bomb their way to peace. It's not, it's not working. What do you see as the solution? I mean, I know that's the million-dollar question that has vexed everyone for decades. But, but how would you like to see Israel respond here? You know, in terms of a bigger picture solution, I, I, it's a very simple question. Um, it's, it's about the application of international law and the respect for, for human rights. These, these things are clearly outlined and understood in, in, uh, in international law. The Palestinians have a right to freedom and dignity in their homeland. Uh, an end to the Israeli military occupation and, and equality for Palestinians, um, but but that requires a political will among leaders uh, who not only have power but also have courage. These are two very different and important things. Um, leaders who have courage uh, to acknowledge that the policies of the past have to be changed. Patrick sent us his thoughts. What Hamas did is beyond horrific. Israel wants and deserves revenge. They have taken it already in terms of numbers of dead and in terms of indiscriminate horror. He says they have the sickening opportunity to do the unthinkable and stop bombing and seek peace in a new way. Catherine asks, what about the surrounding Arab countries' seeming lack of support for Palestinians and it seems attempts to keep them isolated? Anton, I don't know if you would want to respond to that. Obviously, the politics of the region are complex. Uh, they're extremely complex, and um, I think it is fair to say that most government, most Arab governments are not friends of Hamas. However, they are aware of the great sympathy and um, f- of the street, of the populations, for the cause of Palestinians. So they try to, uh, you know, tread between these two the, between these two lines and makes it very difficult for them at times of tension because when things blow up, they appear to be complicit in uh, Israel's actions, and that makes them feel extremely uncomfortable. And they're always aware and scared of the uh, a sort of surge of unrest at home. As Israel bombards Gaza, there are concerns that the fighting could spread in the region. On Thursday, Syrian state media reported that Israeli airstrikes put two Syrian international airports out of service. And since Saturday, there have been uh, some cross-border exchanges of fire between Israel and militants in southern Lebanon and Syria. Israel has sent reinforcements to the north to thwart any Hezbollah attacks. Youssef, the Biden administration has already dispatched two carrier groups to the eastern Mediterranean. How real are fears that Israel's war on Gaza could spark a regional conflict involving Iran, Syria, and Lebanon? Uh, Incredibly real and becoming more likely by the day, especially depending on what Israel is about to do in the Gaza Strip. I think a a, a huge challenge here is that we here in, in the United States and also our policymakers don't understand the way this is being viewed in the region. Um, And there's been a huge disconnect in our policy. Not only have our policymakers been unprepared for this situation, which is a a shocking national security um, uh, malpractice, um, but the way that they're responding it has only driven the escalation. Um, And I think, uh, again, the, the, the appropriate response here is to call for restraint and to back away from the brink because this could easily, if not perhaps likely at this point, spiral into a major regional conflagration. Meanwhile, more than 100 hostages remain in Gaza, um, including some Americans. Patricia asks, does anyone believe the Israeli hostages will live? Emily, I wonder about your thoughts on that question. 
Um, I am not going to make a prediction one way or another, but I, um, you know, uh, what I would say is that there were voices, you know, Aretz came out with an editorial right after this happened saying, please focus on bringing the hostages back. The hostages' own families um, said, you know, please, the what, what you were doing is endangering, you know, my, my daughter, my elderly loved one, my whomever. Um, and it really does seem like the government went with the with Smotrich's, um, excuse me, proposed policy of maximum cruelty and don't think too much about the hostages. Um, and I know that there are people, you know, I, we heard in Block A there, of course, there are people working on this. Of course, there are Americans and Israelis and Palestinians all and, and beyond all working on this issue. But um, unfortunately, the hostages do not appear to have been put front and center in the Israeli government's response. And I should also say, you know, reports came from the south of Israel um, with people really frustrated with their government, not only not only because this happened, not only because of the response, but because of the seeming lack of concern from government officials in the days that followed. You know, people didn't come to it. It took days for the government to get in touch with families of the hostages um, to, to, to visit, to show concern. So I just, you know, I, I would ask that um, that we keep <laughs> those people and their their thoughts and concerns in mind, particularly as the Israeli government says that they're doing this for them. One more story we covered this week on 1A and we're watching closely is in Afghanistan, where residents are dealing with the aftermath of multiple devastating earthquakes. Healthcare system has already collapsed like uh, six months post uh, August 15. So we don't have a proper healthcare system. The education is, of course, paralyzed by the regime itself. And then it comes to recovery. We are a country that was in conflict, so we don't have a lot of... uh, Uh, infrastructure in the first place to begin with. But even now, I don't see them having those proper five-year, 10-year infrastructural plans. So it's very hard to see where they're going. Like, they're not even strategically thinking about these things. That's Pashtana Durrani talking about the Taliban on 1A after the quakes on Saturday. She is the founder of Learn Afghanistan, an organization providing education to Afghan children. On Wednesday, the country was hit by another 6.3 magnitude earthquake that killed at least one person and injured 100 others. The series of quakes on Saturday killed more than 2,000 people. That's according to the Taliban. The earthquakes have been some of the deadliest in the world so far this year. Big thank you to our panelists, Anton LaGuardia, diplomatic editor at The Economist, author of War Without End, Israelis, Palestinians, and the Struggle for a Promised Land, Emily Tampkin, reporter and author of the book Bad Jews, A History of American Jewish Politics and Identities, and Youssef Menayer, head of the Palestine-Israel Program and senior fellow at the Arab Center in Washington, D.C. Mike Kidd is our sound designer and engineer. Chris Castano is our digital editor. Maya Garg is our senior managing producer. A.C. Valdez is our senior supervising producer. Amanda Williams is our special projects editor. Aileen Humphreys is the editor and producer of 1A On Demand, with help from Matthew Simonson. Barb Anguiano produces our podcast. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm NPR's Sarah McCammon. Let's talk more soon. This is 1A. When voters talk during an election season, we listen. We ask questions, we follow up, and we bring you along to hear what we learned. 
get closer to the issues, the people, and your vote at the NPR Elections Hub. Visit npr.org elections. This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR.